You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Taking my cue from last week's lecture, today I want to talk about the Thirty Years' War in Germany. The usual, the dates for the war are 1618 to 1648. And the end of this war, with the, and with the treaty that accompanies it, the Treaty of Westphalia, or the Peace of Westphalia, are generally taken to be the terminal dates for the Counter-Reformation. Because it, was, it is clear by 1648 to the participants, to those involved, to those engaged in the fighting, that one side is not going to defeat the other. The battle has come to a draw and the Henceforward, there are going, there's going to be, or there are going to be in Europe, states that are Protestant and alongside of the states that are Catholic. Uh, the Thirty Years' War began uh, in Prague with what is known as the defenestration of Prague or the throwing of some delegates of the emperor out the window to the ground below where they were fortunately not killed but they were humiliated. And this led the emperor Ferdinand II of Austria to the conscious decision that he was going to reestablish Catholicism everywhere in his dominions, from the Alps to the Baltic from beyond the Rhine to the frontiers of Poland. If he had succeeded in his endeavor, Europe today would be Catholic. He did not succeed, and the principal reason he did not succeed was not that his troops or he was less dedicated to his cause than, say, the Protestants or vice versa, he failed because of an outside force. And that outside force, unforeseen in some ways, others would say predictable in some ways, was France, the country of France. And the Thirty Years' War was really a continuation of the German civil wars or the German religious wars of the 16th century, but they were complicated by the entrance of foreign countries, first Sweden and then France. Or to put it another way, what was emerging and becoming clear as a force in Europe, and which is still a force in Europe and in the world, was nationalism. The idea of 
one's nationality or the country to which one belonged or was a member or a subject being all important. And it was because of this nationalism that Ferdinand failed. Ferdinand was trained by the Jesuits and he was ardently and sincerely Catholic. Uh, the war itself, the Thirty Years' War, is generally divided into four periods, uh, each of them being really a separate war. Uh, the first one was the Bohemian and the second phase was the Danish and these two, the first two, are predominantly religious in character. They are religious wars. It's not false to call them religious wars. Uh, the third period is, ca is called the Swedish, and the fourth is called the French. And they are not really, they're not religious wars so much as old-fashioned political wars. And both, both foreign countries, Sweden and France, are interested in picking up bits or pieces of territory to add to their domain. Uh, Ferdinand and his forces were very successful at the beginning of the war. They had, in fact, one big victory, the Battle of the White Mountain which occurred on the 8th of November in 1620, in which the Protestant army was defeated by the Austrian or the Imperial General Tilly, and it led to the extirpation or the attempt to extirpate Protestantism in Bohemia and violent counter-reformation in Austria and the Danes became involved and in the Danish, the Danish period of the war comes to an end with the Edict of Restitution on the 29th of March in the year 1629. And this is a key and a critical date in the history of the, of the, uh, the Catholic forces and of the Germanies because by terms of, the, of this Edict of Restitution, all lands or ecclesiastical states confiscated since the year 1522 were to be restored. In other words, the terms of this edict said the Reformation is over. The forces of Catholicism have triumphed and any estates, which means lands, territories that were taken or had been confiscated after the year 16 or 1522 were to be restored. Uh, politicians would refer to this as an attempt to go back or go to the status quo ante, the period before the, the war started. And this frightened some people in Europe. It frightened, above all, the effective 
day-to-day -day ruler of France who was Cardinal Richelieu, the, ki the king's right-hand man. And it frightened him because it, he saw, with this triumph of the imperial forces of Catholicism, a Ferdinand, a triumph of the Habsburgs. And again, it helps just to look at a map of Europe for this time and to see what lands or what countries are Habsburg. And if you do that, you will see that France was surrounded by Habsburg lands or lands that had Habsburg rulers. And Cardinal Richelieu decided that it was in the best interests of France to weaken the Habsburg. And so what he did was he made a pact with a foreign ruler, the king of Sweden, one Gustavus Adolphus, and had him come into the war against the imperial forces or against the emperor. And from the Catholic viewpoint, the unfortunate thing is that Gustavus Adolphus was a military genius, and he managed to undo in one year or a little more than a year the effects of 10 years of fighting. And uh, by 1632, things were again at sixes and sevens, or the ed it was clear that the Edict of Restitution was not going to be enforced or put into effect, and that they would continue fighting. What the outcome would be was, again, doubtful. Gustavus Adolphus was killed in battle, and it looked as if the imperial forces might be able to regain the advantage and to impose their will on the countries that they conquered. Again, Richelieu saw, thought that it was in the best interest of France for this not to happen. So French forces came into the war on the side of the Protestants who were fighting the emperor and the imperial forces. And the war dragged on and dragged out, and we can say that it had a number of effects, or there were a number of results that came from it. Uh, the first was the physical devastation of the German, many of the German-speaking lands. Uh, they were simply ravaged because the Swedish forces and the French forces were marauders in the eyes of the natives. They frequently lived off the land and they had no interest in, in, in not destroying monuments, bridges, uh, what today uh, many would call the infrastructure of the state or of society. And uh, they proceeded to act as conquering armies frequently do, so that Germany was devastated, physically devastated. 
On top of this, there was exhaustion. They were simply tired of fighting. And the war stopped as much from exhaustion as from a desire for peace or anyone seeing the value of peace. And uh, it had this momentous effect in, for secular history, apart from religious history. What it meant was that the imperial forces, or we can say that, that Germany was pretty much out of it and was going to be out of it for quite some time. In other words, there was a vacuum in Germany. And again, if you look at the map and just see the situation where Germany is located, how critical it is to the continent of Europe. And it was not to anyone's interest to allow that vacuum to continue. And the vacuum was filled eventually by a country in which the people spoke German, but which has had not really been considered part of, of the Germanese so much, and was certainly not part of the empire, and that was Prussia. It's, in other words, the, peace of, uh, the end of the, the war in Germany set the stage for the rise of Prussia, from which modern Germany has evolved. Uh, a thir third effect, or thing to note, about the war is how it ended or what was negotiated at the Treaty of Westphalia or the Peace of Westphalia. Uh, what was decided there really makes it a key date in European history. And many would say that modern, in the history of modern Europe begins in 1648. In many universities, they would start the history of modern Europe at 1517, but it would be either 1517 or 1648. In other words, either with the beginning date for this religious movement or with the con what many consider to be the concluding date for this religious movement. In any case, it is a critical and a key date in the history of Europe, and it is really the, the seal of the Reformation. And it was proof, living proof, that at that time Catholics or the Catholic forces had failed to restore religious unity to Europe. The Peace of Westphalia, or the, we can say the Thirty Years' War, is a definite sign that the Catholic Church, through its head the Pope, would no longer be a recognized force in the public life of Europe. Previous to this time, when war, if wars had been fought or when wars had been fought and then peace treaties were negotiated, if the Pope had an interest in it, he would be re represented at the treaty. He, he would have a legate attend and 
that legate would represent the, the Pope and present his interest or the interest of the church to the warring parties who were making peace. The Pope was allowed to have no representative at the treaties that led to the peace of Westphalia. In other words, he was not represented at the treaty conferences. And he would be henceforth excluded. So that to this day, the Pope works on the periphery, as it were, on the outside. It's a stage in the development of the secularization of European society. What this means is that in the future, and it had been this way for some time, and the emperor had been trying to undo this, but it means that definitely for, for the future, the Catholic Church will be a church in Europe, not the church. There are, in other words, many churches henceforward in Europe. And this, of course, has serious and profound effects, not just in Europe, but for any lands to which the Europeans will go overseas. In other words, we can see it right here in our own Western Hemisphere that south of the Rio Grande, the settlements, the, co the colonization, the settlements, the setting up of empires, and that was mainly by Spain or Portugal, and so there are Catholic countries there. North of us in Canada, the, the first part of Canada settled, colonized and settled was Quebec, uh, and that was Catholic. In our country, the first, uh, there were early settlements by the Spanish that did not last or endure, and the first permanent settlement in the, uh, here in the 13 original, what we call the 13 original colonies was in Virginia, and it was the, by the Protestant English, so that the United States is, in its origins, a, a Protestant country, whereas to the north of us and to the south of us, we have countries that were, in their origins, Catholic. And the reason for that is simply that the Reformation in one way ended in a draw and uh, with neither side winning and in some sense neither side liking the conclusion but unable to do anything about it. To look at it in another way, we can say that what the Treaty or the Peace of Westphalia does is to give official status to Protestantism. In other words, the emperor has to accept the fact that there are now and there are going to be in the future, in his empire, in his realm, men and women who are not Catholic, who are Protestant. They may be Lutheran, they may be Calvinist, they may belong to another Protestant group, but they will not be Catholic 
they will not accept the authority of, of the Pope. And this means then that in the future there are going to there will be two cultures in Europe, a Protestant culture and a Catholic culture. And to simplify and simplification has been done frequently in the past. Again, if you look at the map, which would be colored for Protestantism and for Catholicism, you would see that the major most of the Protestant countries are in the north of Europe, and the countries that stay Catholic are in the south. And this led to the idea sometimes written up and put into history books that Protestantism is a northern thing and that Catholicism is a southern or a Latin thing. Uh, but there are always exceptions to prove the rule, as it were, or to show the weakness in the argument. The Protestant strongholds, for instance, in France have always been in the south. The Catholic strongholds, if we can use that term for Catholic France, were in the north. And uh, it does not mean, really, that the Pro there is nothing necessarily Protestant about the north of Europe or anything necessarily Catholic about the south of Europe. Uh, so we have... A, a divided Europe emerging from the failure of Catholicism to assert itself so that the emperor could have a religiously unified empire. That was his desire, and he was unable to achieve that. Another view that you will sometimes run across, it's old and under the impact of the, the new, not so much history, of the writings of the new historians about the Counter-Reformation, uh, your chances of running into this are fortunately becoming slimmer and slimmer. But there was a time when many wrote that because the modern world began to exist after the Reformation, that there, uh, some think that it, the Reformation then is, was necessary for the beginnings of the modern world. And they see this especially for what was done in science and technology and if the writers are Protestant, they say that these things happened because the, the men, the scientists, and, and others were free of the shackles of dogma. They were not tied in. It's a, a post hoc ergo propter hoc argument, after, therefore, because. Uh, but more than anything, I think what we can, if there's a lesson to be learned from the history of the Counter-Reformation, we can say is what it shows is 
the importance of religion. And we know that it is only in this century that the effects, the full effects of the Reformation began, or the, the upheaval itself began to settle. And we can speak really of the end of the, the Reformation in some way occurring in the 20th century. Some if Catholics would say that Trent and the view of Catholicism that it imposed on the church or gave to the church took hold and continued on till 1962. They would say the opening of the Second Vatican Council then marks the end of an era, the Tridentine era of Catholicism. And uh, somewhere in the 20th century, some might say in somewhere between 1914 and 1945, or in what some historians call the Second Thirty Years' War, what we call the Two World Wars, one and two, that in that the Reformation settled and, and came to an end. Uh, and by that, what is meant is that confessional allegiances are not less important, but they are less divisive. And that henceforward, Catholics and Protestants will in some ways see that what they have to be con they both should have the same concern, and that is the drying up of belief, that it's skepticism, agnosticism, atheism, or simply lack of belief in God. Others would call it secularism or sec secular humanism or whatever. But there is no doubt that we can see that, you know, the age that we're living in and the age that has shaped us and shapes will, will shape your sons and daughters is an age that was in some way formed by the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. In other words, the Counter-Reformation was in some way the matrix for what we can call modern Catholicism. And in the, my next and final lecture, I want to talk not about effects of the, of the Counter-Reformation, but about some men who were alive during the Counter-Reformation who took no active part in the religious wars, with one, one exception, but simply went about doing their duties and at the same time contributed very much either to the, the modern mentality or the Catholic view or the Counter-Reformation view of life. The Counter-Reformation is a European as well as a religious phenomenon.
in the last chapter of his study of the Counter-Reformation, Marvin O'Connell refers to the quality of mind of Europe. In fact, he uses that as the title for the chapter, and he calls the Counter-Reformation the last age of the ancient world, not because of religion or politics, but because, as he says, and this is a direct quotation, it was innocent of that mathematical physics which has created the modern world. And he believed that the Counter-Reformation mind had a double thrust, one below the surface and the emerging, emerging scientific view, and the other what we would call the humanist or the men who worked with words. And he singles out five men for extended treatment, and this is how he ends his history, religious history, or history of this religious phenomenon called the Counter-Reformation. He deals with the Frenchman Montaigne, who was the inventor of the essay. Uh, he deals with the politique and legal scholar Jean Baudin, and also deals with the pol political and polemical writings of the centuriators of Magdeburg. And finally, he gives the last word to two literary craftsmen. We might be more inclined to say to geniuses, Miguel de Cervantes and William Shakespeare. Now, O'Connell wrote his history as part of a series, and he had the time frame given to him. He was dealing with the period 1560 to 1610. And he took these five men as being representative of the Counter-Reformation because they worked, lived and worked within this period. Uh, I would like to, we go to 1648 and I think it right to jump forward and I would like to take two men who lived and worked within this period and use them as examples of either the kind of men produced by the Counter-Reformation, who were not saints, who were not uh, working directly in some way for the Counter-Reformation forces, but who were very religious men, and who were very much aware of the age in which they lived and of what it needed. And uh, I should just, by way of preface to the two men that I want to talk about, say that uh, Cervantes and Shakespeare were contemporaries, and each would be admitted, I think, with uh, very few demurring or disagreeing, each would be admitted to be the premier name in his country's literature. There is no name in English literature greater than Shakespeare. 
There is no name in Spanish literature greater than Cervantes. Shakespeare was not acknowledgedly or uh, professedly a Catholic, although some have tried to make out that he came from a Catholic milieu. Uh, Cervantes was. Cervantes was part of Philip II Spain, and you could not be in Philip II Spain or 16th century Spain without being aware of your religion, of your faith. And Cervantes wrote as a Catholic, and each of them produced masterpieces. Cervantes, of course, is Don Quixote, which is part of the universal legacy of European literature. And Shakespeare wrote his plays, Hamlet, Macbeth, Lear, to name just three of the greatest. But these works were produced while the, this movement, the Counter-Reformation, while the Reformation, while the wars were being fought, these men were doing things. And, of course, Shakespeare and Cervantes both surmount their age. They stand above and outside their age, or to use the phrase that is something of a cliché, they are men for the ages. Now, two men that I would like to talk about now, both of whom were Catholic and both of whom lived in the 17th century, are Blaise Pascal, a Frenchman, and Jean Lorenzo Bernini, an Italian. Now, Pascal was born in 1623 and died in 1662. Uh, so he died quite young. He was well-educated. He was educated, though not in school or in the traditional way, but at home. We would say he was homeschooled today, and his father was his educator. And his father was an accomplished mathematician and lawyer. And... Uh, most of Pascal's life was lived during the Thirty Years' War, uh, when the Reformation wasn't, and the Counter-Reformation were being decided on the field of battle. Pascal himself fought in battles, but not military ones. His were theological, but not, not with Protestants. They were with his co-religionists, and they were fought in the name of a purified form of Catholicism that we call Jansenism, and which we do not have time enough to treat in these lectures. But the Counter-Reformation in France leads logically and ineluctably, unavoidably, into this mo movement within France that is called Jansenism. But to understand Pascal, we have to remember that he was French, that he was Catholic of a certain kind, a Jansenist, and that he was a mathematical and scientific genius and a master of French prose. And it is this last which gives him claim to influence and makes his name uh, known far beyond the shores of France. Uh, 
just to, almost in passing to mention his mathematical and scientific work. He wrote at the age of 16 a path-breaking treatise on conical sections. He invented an arithmetical machine which was the forerunner of the calculator and the computer. He demonstrated the existence of the vacuum and he established the foundation of calculus and probabilities. And in his day, while he was alive, he was known primarily as a mathematician and a scientist. But of even greater significance than his scientific work were his two religious conversions. Not one, but two. His first, in 1646, was to Jansenism. His second, which was far more profound, was nothing less than a revelation of the living God and occurred on the night of 23 November 1654 and is enshrined in his brilliantly written memorial. And this conversion marked him literally for the rest of his life. Now each of these conversions are responsible for a literary work of Pascal. The Jansenist for his work called Les Lettres Provinciales, the Provincial Letters. A work really ephemeral by nature and given life far beyond its importance by its author's enduring fame. The letters were written in defense of the Jansenist theology against the Jesuits. And they make fun of the Jesuits. They poke fun at the Jesuits. And they have been used by enemies of the Jesuits as weapons against the Jesuits. They're really inflated in importance. And uh, Pascal was not honest in, in his treatment of the Jesuits or in his dealings with them in his letters. But when the letters were published, they were published serially. They were the talk of all Paris. And uh, they are a milestone, though, in the development of French or the French prose and were enormously popular when literally the talk of the town. But if we take those provincial letters and place them beside his other work, the Pensee Thoughts, we can see the provincial letters shrink in importance. Pascal's undoubted masterpiece and one of the masterpieces of all Christian literature uh, is the Pensee, the thoughts. Uh, they, the thoughts are also a great work of Christian apologetics. They are Pascal's way of justifying to himself and to others belief in this Christian faith, in this Christian faith, which is the Catholic religion. 
there are a number of things that are striking about the Pensee. The first is that it's an unfinished work. Uh, when Pascal died, he simply left this book, what we call a book, as a series of notes. It was incomplete and it was unfinished and the notes were left in any kind of order, helter-skelter almost, in disorder really. And it was up to editors, men who came afterwards, to take and to put them into some kind of order. But I think rather than talk about the, the pensée or the thoughts, the best thing to do is simply to read one or two of them. Uh, perhaps the most famous one, it was, it was used as the title of a novel in England at, uh, about 70 years ago is The Thinking Reed. Pascal said, man is a reed, but a thinking reed. But here are two examples of these thoughts of his. These are very short. Others are longer, a full paragraph, a page, three pages. The way of God, who disposes all things with gentleness, is to instill religion into our minds with reasoned arguments and into our hearts with grace. One of the most famous of his pensées is 423. The heart has its reasons, of which reason knows nothing. And then he follows that with 424. It is the heart which perceives God not the reason. That is what faith is. God perceived by the heart, not the reason. Any reading of the Pensee shows that this man, Pascal, had thought long and deeply about his faith, and he was in the process of putting this down on paper and organizing it when he died. In other words, he was unable to, to accomplish or finish what we see as the chief work of his life. We cannot say that about the next man, the Italian artist and sculptor Jean, John Lorenzo Bernini, who lived from 1598 to 1680. He lived a long, a full, and a very, very productive life. Uh, and I have chosen Bernini to end this series of lectures on the Counter-Reformation, to end them with Bernini, because he is, I think, the logical choice for anyone who visits or has visited Rome. I said in an earlier lecture that Sixtus V began the transformation of Rome from a Renaissance city to a Baroque city. The man who more than any other put a Baroque stamp on Rome was Bernini, the sculptor.
He is the greatest sculptor and architect of the Counter-Reformation. Like Mozart, he was a child prodigy. And he learned, if that's the right word to use, his trade, being a sculptor and an artist, from his father. He lived in Rome. He was born in 1598. Started living in Rome as a child when he in 1605 and lived there until 1680 except for six months spent in Paris. And he was architect of St. Peter's Basilica for more than 50 years. And he directed many works throughout the city. And he worked indefatigably very, very hard and adorned most of what he touched. In one sense, we can say the inscription that is found on the tomb of Sir Christopher Wren in St. Paul's in London could be said equally well of Bernini. The inscription says, if you seek his monument, look around you. And we could say that about Bernini and Baroque Rome. What about the art of Bernini? Or I think it best simply to read a short selection here from Kenneth Clark's book on civilization. Uh, he says of Bernini that he was a very great artist. And although his work may seem to lack the awe-inspiring seriousness and concentration of Michelangelo, it was in its century even more pervasive and influential. He not only gave Baroque Rome its character, but he was the chief source of an international style that spread all over Europe, as Gothic had done and as the Renaissance style never did. And then Clark goes on to say that no sculptor ever carved marble more skillfully than Bernini. But I would suggest simply two works for consideration. You can't miss them if you go to Rome and if you go to St. Peter's. The first is the Piazza of St. Peter's itself with its enormous colonnade which frames and makes both the facade of the basilica and the piazza a unit. And we should note that the effect on the viewer, that is you or I if we go to Rome today, is less than what it was a hundred years ago before the street, the, the Via della Conciliazione, was cut leading directly into the piazza so that as you come down that street we can see the piazza. A hundred years ago it was not there and you came to the piazza and then entered and the effect was, was dramatic, probably almost melodramatic because it just opened up for you and you could see the Piazza and then the, 
basilica itself. If you go f through the piazza and enter the basilica, what you see immediately as you come in the door and as you look straight ahead is the baldacchino over the high altar of the basilica itself. And some have said that that baldacchino is the greatest work of the Baroque. It is certainly a masterpiece of the Baroque. And it is as well a masterpiece of engineering. It was enormously expensive. But the Pope, who was the patron of Bernini and promoted him, spared no expense and was pr probably extravagant in what he did spend on it. But we of a later age then are the lucky ones. We can see that. But I'm ending with Bernini because without intending it, he sums up, through not through his person, not through what he wrote, but through his work, through what he produced, the mind of the Counter-Reformation and of Counter-Reformation popes at the end of the Counter-Reformation period. Some find it, as I said, a little extravagant. Some might find it triumphalist. But as we see St. Peter's and see the high altar or the baldacchino over the high altar, we are given some idea of what the men and women of the times and especially what the popes thought of themselves and what they wanted others to think. We can say in a sense with, with two meanings that we are back where we began. The Reformation began with the building of St. Peter's. And I am ending these lectures on the Counter-Reformation with the building of St. Peter's. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.